Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today you're listening to Percolating on Faith, but it's a very special edition of Percolating on Faith. Uh, We've been looking at a lot of the different mystics um, in the past, and today you'll have a very familiar voice talking to you about one of those mystics. So let's all welcome back. Hi, Tony. Thanks for being here. Hi, Carla. It's a pleasure to be with you and to talk about Julian of Norwich. Julian of Norwich. I'm so excited to learn more about her. And I must admit, something about her name makes me hungry. (laughs) I think it must just be the sandwich thing. (laughs) I'm sure you can get a good sandwich in Norwich. But uh, yeah, what if I told you, Carla, that that's not really her name and that we don't actually know her name, but she she was named after the Church of St. Julian, where she was an anchoress. And we can talk about that later. But yeah, I oh, gosh. Tony, you've already jumped into Julian. So let's just, let's just go for it. So um, tell me more about what an anchoress is or however you want to start. Let's just get going. Well, sure. And and I'm, I'm glad to offer this in this uh, series on mystics. And Julian is one of my interests. Um, We have students, Charmaine, I have students, both undergrad and grad students uh, read and encounter Julian because she is a remarkable, remarkable thinker from the middle ages whose works really I say, I say works, her one work, The Revelations of Divine Love, has kind of come into its own in the last 50, 60 years. Um, so she's quite worth knowing and is in some respects theologically a revolutionary figure in, in the Middle Ages, though wouldn't have been, would hardly have been known then. And her revolutionary thought <laughs> escaped, escaped the notice apparently of church authorities who might not have liked it so much. <laughs> So now there's a little bit of intrigue in this, but Ooh, I'll, yeah. tell you some, I'll tell you some basics about, about Julian. I'm going to call her Julian. Uh, that's what everybody calls her. And she is an otherwise unknown English anchoress. And as I mentioned, her name is derived from the Church of St. Julian, to which she was attached. Now, what do I mean by attached? So I called her an anchoress. And, and to be an anchorite or an anchoress in the Middle Ages was a particular spiritual vocation. And it was a kind of medieval riff on something that went all the way back to the fourth century to the desert fathers and mothers. And first the word, uh, <laughs> the word anchoress or anchorite, um, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with anchors, but in Greek, the, the verb anachoreo means to withdraw. And it's used in the Gospels. Jesus and his disciples withdrew to the wilderness, right? And so the early desert monastics were sometimes called anchorites because they had withdrawn completely from society out to the Egyptian or Syrian deserts where they lived in kind of radical obedience to Jesus in contemplation and in spiritual reflection. So, well, now we're going to fast forward to when Julian lived. Julian lives from 1342 to sometime after 1416. We don't know exactly when she died, but there are some, there's some, uh, some textual uh, data from the period which indicates she probably was still alive around 1416. But 
actually she lived you know 70 some years <laughs> in the in the fourth if from the, in the 14th century which is a very long time to live in the 14th century so as an anchoress she had taken a particular kind of vow and this vow was to become a contemplative and it it had to pass through a bishop a bishop had to kind of do some discernment on it as we would say in our terms and when when someone became a, an anchoress or an anchorite a number of things happened first of all this was not a time when people withdrew to the wilderness like the desert fathers this is a this is a, a series of vows that is taken and a, a a spiritual location that is practiced mostly in the cities so it's withdrawing into a a kind of intentional solitude inside a city and attached to a church so uh what what was this about well an, an anchor hold would have been a small building or shed <laughs> attached to a church and when when it was dis when someone when someone offered themselves to be uh, a, an anchorite or an anchoress after this discernment process once the bishop determined that this was a genuine vocation they went through a particular rite and the rite was called the rite of enclosure now once when when you when you accept this as your vocation and when the church accepts this as your vocation in the 14th century here's what's going to happen um you are going to be given last rites yep you're going to be given last rites and there's a, a particular like uh, ritual of enclosure a requiem mass a mass for the dead is said for you and you're still alive right and then the bishop will escort you to the anchor hold uh, that's where you'll be given extreme unctions last rites uh, in some cases the anchor hold will be sprinkled with dust dust and ashes right and you will be escorted into the anchor hold and the bishop will then bolt the door behind you and this is where you're going to spend the rest of your life in prayer and contemplation for the church for the community and to be there available for spiritual uh, insight and direction for people from the community so <laughs> but oh my gosh oh my gosh uh-huh uh-huh so in a sense uh as as grace jansen who's one of the great books on julian Orr, says that this is like the, the image here is that you are being sealed in the tomb with the dead christ and now your anchor hold so your anchor hold is it's it could be smallish or could have a few little rooms you will be uh assigned a servant and the servant for for an anchoress the servant uh from what we know was hopefully an older woman who was single, maybe a widow, who who would then would then basically be living in a small room attached. She would take care of your earthly stuff, right? She would do the shopping, she would do the cooking, she would do the cleaning, she would clean out your your room, um, and you know she was your your main contact with the outside world. Though basically, as an anchoress, a contact with the outside world is is to be severely limited and so you've got this person as a buffer who is your your servant um you couldn't have pets but you could have a cat and the the cat very likely for an anchoress or an anchorite 
might have been a way to control mice and rats. Um, and uh, according to, there's, there's a, a text from the 13th century called the, well, it's, it's in old, it's, it's in Middle English, and it's called something like the Ancrena Ruyula. I, I hope I've said the Middle English right. And it basically is the guidebook for being an anchoress. <laughs> and in the guidebook for being an anchoress, one of the things you discover is that, um, well, it's not advised. You can have a cow, too. <laughs> as long as it's not a nuisance and doesn't, you know, like wander everybody's <laughs> yards and lots and stuff. But basically, your, your job now as an anchoress is to focus on the church, focus on Christ, focus on prayer, develop a contemplative life for the sake of the community. And, and it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty rigorous life. Your little, your little anchor hold uh, is built so that it has a window that looks into the church. And there, uh, through the window, you can see mass celebrated. You can see the priest doing the different uh, offices of the day, which you can chant along with him as long as you don't chant them real loud. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a there's another there's another window that points outside, and there might have been a small porch connected to it, according to the according to the specialists from this uh, on this era. And this is a window by at which people from the community who, who needed some spiritual wisdom or guidance from this now holy woman could come, and that was that would have been the anchoress or anchorite's main contact with the outside world. The, the servant um, the servant was supposed to not spread gossip to you but uh, as different authors have said you know if you're if you're an anchoress in 14th century Norwich in, in England um, people are going to be bringing their their woes and their struggles and their pains to you and you're gonna and uh, I think Grace Jansen says you're, you're gonna be able to sew this together into a narrative you're gonna pretty much know what's going on so the next time, theoretically, then the next time you come out of the anchor hold is when they carry your body out when you die. Um, to become an anchoress was probably not something that happened to the the surf class or the poor class. In other words, there, were, there probably were some means involved um, and some capacity to read and write, um, though it would have varied from place to place. Um, and what else can I tell you? Uh, yeah, what did you eat? Well, um, by the way, if you ever left the anchor hold before you died, uh, that would be breaking your vow and you'd be excommunicated, which is a big thing in the Middle Ages, right? So um, you, 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 were, you were served two meals a day from Easter to the Feast of the Holy Cross in September. So from you know, basically uh, roughly early April until September, you got two meals a day. Um, from that feast in September to Easter, you got one meal a day, except on, fr on Fridays, that was a fast day, all through the Middle Ages for everybody. That's a fast day, a, a kind of a bread and water day. Sunday, though, the fast rules were, were relinquished, and it was a two meals day. So um, this, this might have been a really good weight loss plan. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you're saying is literally sounds like my personal hell, my personal <laughs> hell, I, not eating, not seeing people and owning a cow and a cat. Well, I don't mind that. That'd be great. But oh my gosh. 
Oh it, my gosh. You know, Carla, uh, since everybody who knows you knows that you are the mothership of extroverts, this would have been excruciating for you. This would have death, been excruciating. Death might have come very early. <laughs> like, I don't even really think I would have made it. That's, it just, like, you would have had to be so devoted. Like, everything, everything about you would have to be so devoted. I can't even fathom people wanting to do that. It, that's just a, blowing my mind, Tony. Well, it's a different world in a different context, isn't it? And and the 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 depth of devotion to to want to accept this kind of a vocation is something that's that's not common in, in our world. Um, we 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 worry about when we can get Diet Pepsi on sale, you know, it's, <laughs> right? Um, and here we have we have people, men and women, but we know quite a bit about women who did this, who's uh, who who went into this in some cases as youngish women. Now there's a there's a controversy about when Julian actually became an anchoress, and I think you know at this point what I what I believe is that as far as I can tell she she was already an anchoress when she had the visions I'm going to talk about here in a few minutes uh, that became her great book the the revelations of divine love. I mean you can argue different cases for this, but it if if she was if she was already an anchoress. Uh, when she had the these remarkable visions, then um, she would have been, you know, she would have gone into the anchor hold maybe when she was 29 or 30. So young young adult, though of course it's the middle ages, and that would have that would have been <laughs> more like more like middle age <laughs> for lots of people. So let me tell you a little bit about Julian's like context because that that shapes uh, some of what we can know about the theological meaning of her mystical experiences. So I often tell students in the history of Christian thought, in the middle in the Middle Ages, if there's one century I could pick to live in, it'd be the 13th century. That's the century of high scholasticism, the century of Thomas Aquinas, the century of Saint Bonaventure. It's it's like it's like the century in which theology reaches this incredible height as it as it tries to interact with the writings of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. And then if I could pick one century I would want to avoid in the Middle Ages, it would be the 14th century, <laughs> the 1300s. And here's why. I mean, the, the 14th century is like the worst of all possible worlds. Number one, uh, the church, the, the Catholic church, which is the only church every, anybody knows in the Western world, the church has a divided papacy, right? There's a, a, a giant kind of, uh, it's called the Babylonian captivity of the, of the papacy. Um, and in other words, there were two popes and one pope was in France in Avignon and one pope was in Rome in Italy. And uh, this got ugly. This was a, this was a mudslinging contest. And so, so the church, the church's credibility in the 14th century is somewhat uh, suspect by the average person. And if that weren't, bad enough. I mean, so there's this spiritual malaise in the 14th century. But then this is the century of the bubonic plague, uh, which centuries later came to be called the Black Death. But this was the, the, the plague somehow was passed uh, to Italy or Sicily uh, by ship in uh, the early 1300s. It rapidly spread through Europe. It hits England in 1348. And this, I, I suppose, at this, at when you and I are recording, Scarlett, we're two years into to COVID. 
so we have a, a little bit to compare, but not much because the bubonic plague literally killed a third of the population of Europe, if not more. It's hard to know, but at least a third of the population. And it, it especially hit cities and it especially hit monasteries and it especially hit clergy. So it's, uh, I think Grace Jansen says that, that, the, that the plague when it reached Norwich probably wiped out about half of the clergy. Because, you know, th this, this is a situation where people wake up in the morning feeling fine and they're dead by evening. And bodies are being carted, you know, by the cart full to giant pits to be buried. And handling them might be a death sentence for you too. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely just a horrendous experience. And so Julian would have been a, a child during that. And it would be nice to know more about her life. Like what, what did she do? How did, her, how did her parents and her survive? Did her parents survive? We don't, you know, there's so much we don't know about her because she hardly ever talks about herself. But so the plague left, left just massive devastation all over Europe. Um, so there's that. Then in the 14th century, <clears throat> There are peasant uprisings in England. The, the, the peasantry, are ha they've had enough. And the peasant uprisings are brutally suppressed. And some church officials are involved in the suppression of the peasants. Um, this is the, the century in which a scholar named John Wycliffe and his followers create an English translation of the Bible, the first actual one, full one that we know of. And... Uh, yeah. Before you go on too far, um, John Wycliffe was an ancestor of mine. FYI. Oh, really? Seriously? Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Patience. Wow. I. You know, when you now that you say that, I think I vaguely remember you saying that at some point, but I totally forgotten. That is cool. Well, things didn't go well for him. <laughs> so, but um, so there, there's like these these early waves of reformist impulses trying to reform the church and they're 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 kind of brutally suppressed right and so there's that and then the bishop of norwich whose name was henry de spencer who was more warrior than bishop um is probably the bishop who okayed julian for being uh an anchorite but this this man is more uh, marine than he is bishop, and he was involved in all kinds of violent suppression of the peasants. And okay, so to make this all more complicated, Carla. So Pope Urban from Rome wants to sponsor. Uh, he he wants the other pope in France to be put down, and so it's a, it's a complicated mess. But that. But the English, with Henry de Spencer's support, start you know, they, they gather people up to do a crusade in Flanders, right, uh, against the French. Now, this is going to be Christians crusading against Christians. I mean, it's, it's just getting really ugly here. And Urban, Pope Urban had said, there's going to be uh, dispensation for sins if you join this crusade to support my cause, and we'll even give... We'll even give dispensation for your dead relatives. Well, you know, as Jansen points out, uh, people in Norwich 
in the late 1300s have a lot of dead relatives because they're buried in they're buried in plague pits. So so uh, another scholar, Shelley Rambo, writes a great chapter on Julian in the book uh, Empire in the Christian Tradition. So Henry Dispenser, this this martial bishop, as he was called. Um, gathers people together to join a crusade. They cross over to Flanders. After some initial successes, they're just, <laughs> it falls apart. And then as Shelley Rambo points out, you have all these wounded and beaten uh, and people coming back to Norwich, completely devastated by their losses. And again, kind of uh, the church's credibility has taken another hit. That's the situation in which Julian of Norwich has a series of remarkable experiences that comes to fruition in a book that, that it, we, we know as by the title, Revelations of Divine Love. Or her word was showings, the showings. And so they, there was like these sort of visual experiences that happened for her. So, and um, she wrote this, she wrote down her, her, her visions in two forms. Um, the, the, vision, the, the, the visionary experiences happened in May of 1373. In fact, she dates it, May 13th, 1373. And soon after these visionary experiences, she wrote what's called the short text. 20 years later, after 20, 20 years of reflecting on these experiences, she wrote another version called the long text. And it is considerably longer. And she's done a lot of theological reflection on what happened to her since then. And the long text is what I'll be citing from and using uh, today. It, it's, it's, it's very interesting to have two texts from the same person and a 20-year space of time for her thinking about what it meant and all that. So the, the long text is theologically dense and rich uh, and extremely, extremely valuable and provocative. So, so I'll tell you about the experiences here in just a minute. And I'll just say that in this book, Julian, Julian protests that she is unlettered. <laughs> Um, as far as we know, she's the first woman to write in Middle English. So she didn't write in Latin. She wrote in, she wrote in the common language. Um, and she's writing about the time Chaucer is writing, if that gives you kind of a, uh, kind of a, a benchmark. Um, so medieval, medieval Christian women did write, and many of them were very lettered and very well trained. They were not able to do what we'd call university education or cathedral school education, but in monasteries and other places. And if they were part of the upper class, they, they, were, they were literate uh, to some extent. So probably what Julian means by she's unlettered is she's not telling a fib here. She's not saying, don't pay any attention to me. I'm, I'm, I'm just a woman. She's not saying that so much as she may be saying, I'm not university educated. Right. So because that would have raised way a lot of eyebrows since that was the province of men in that time. Um, it's kind of a common trope for women to say stuff like that. But, you know, we've got lots and lots of texts that come from medieval uh, female authors. So it's not that it's not that women couldn't read and write. It's that they had to be careful what they said about their reading and writing. Um, so from the long text, Scholars can tell that Julian, she knows the, the Bible really well. Um, it's possible she knew the Latin Vulgate translation. She would have heard it chanted every day from her. <laughs> and by the way, Carla, she had no place to go. 
<laughs> so I can't think of a better way to learn Latin than to hear it every day chanted, and that's kind of some of the highlights of your day. Um, there, there were, as Jansen points out, there were in Norwich um, monasteries and centers for a variety of religious orders. So, and an Augustinian, uh, an Augustinian center was very close to the anchor hold. And so she might have had access to books and texts that way. But she's, she's anything but, but illiterate. Um, she knows medieval theology and knows what the church teaches and is extremely thoughtful. But, she, but, but what happens to her in this vision is the focus of what will be uh, this book. So I'll pause there, Carla, and see if there's any questions or, or wonderings you have before I get into her experience. Um, I am actually really appreciative that you have put her in this context for us because, you know, there are times in my life when I'm like, oh, it wasn't that hard to be a woman back when, oh, it wasn't, but it was, it was very, very difficult. She was, she had already dedicated her life. And when I say dedicated her life, definitely like she's living in a box for the rest of her life. Um, so, and gosh, learning, you know, thinking about the bubonic plague and how people's lives are affected. You know, like I see us two years into this pandemic and I am not the same person I was two years ago, that's for sure. So lives are definitely changed and moving and transitioning. So everything around her is changing all at the same, all at the time, all at one time. So it's really helpful to me to get that context in place. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, I think this is really important. And I, I you know, it, it, we, we teach constantly context, context, context. We always have to try to understand whether it's biblical texts or church history or, or theology, we have to understand context. And I think so, so much, there, there's so much more that comes out of reading uh, her revelations of divine love when you know what a brutal, brutal period it was that she lived in. So I'm glad that the context is helpful. Yes, it, it definitely is. You know, it, it's, we, we, we of course wish we knew more about her. But her contemplative vocation is not about her. So she doesn't, <laughs> you know, when she, when she describes the, the experiences that led to her visions, that's about as much as we're going to get from her. Um, we know that, that, that her mother was present when she, had, when she had the sickness that I'm about to describe. Um, and, and a few others. But gracious, we have to kind of, we have to do a lot of, of guesswork based on what can be known about life in 14th century England. So, but still what we have in front of us is this text and here's how it got started. So um, it's May 13th, 1373. And Julian tells us in kind of a preface to this that she had desired what she calls three graces. Now she's a contemplative, right? And so her her life is focused on spirituality centered in the life of the church, the sacramental life and the devotional life of the, of the church in the 14th century. The three graces she says she desired was she wanted, number one, recollection of the passion. That means recollection here is, is kind of uh, mental participation in, in Christ's passion. And then this is gonna, next one's going to sound strange. It's a hard one. She desired a bodily sickness. And, she'll, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And then the third thing she desired was three more things. She desired three wounds. And she defines the wounds as uh, a wound that would give her a deeper feeling for the passion of Christ through kind of seeing it. 
And then the second of the three wounds is a sickness unto death. So there's kind of a little bit of a circular repetition here. A sickness unto death that would lead to a purgation of her sins so that she could live more fully to God. And uh, this is the mystical tradition, the contemplative tradition. Uh, purgation is part of the process of growing into a deeper life in God. So that's basically she's doing what mystics do or wanting what mystics want. And then, then she wanted to receive through God's grace, three additional wounds, true contrition, that is feeling, feeling sorry for one's mistakes, loving compassion, and longing for God. So the things she, the things she yearns for spiritually are really uh, to be more deeply grounded in the passion of Christ, to have, to have a, a deeper awareness of what that means, um, to have a, a kind of cleansing of her her own her own self stuff and then compassion now it's interesting loving compassion think of the people who are coming to that window talking to her um i think i would have run into compassion fatigue pretty soon you have the people who are impoverished they've lost a third of their family or more or all of their family because of the plague you have the people coming back from this abortive crusade against other Christians who are wounded, maimed, missing limbs, hobbling into town. Uh, they're, 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 there is no VA hospital for them, right? And so you have, you have people in all kinds of states of hostility, uh, trauma. And so one of the things she longs for is loving compassion, uh, which says kind of a lot about her spirituality. So these are the things she'd been praying for and longing for in her daily devotions in the anchor hold. And so at the age of 30 and a half, she's very precise. Uh, on this May, th May date in 1373, she becomes gravely, gravely ill. And she's really at death's door the way she describes it. Um, her priest is sent for. He comes to the anchor hold to be present. This is one of the few times a male could ever come into an anchoress's anchor hold, right? To give last rites or to be there at death. Um, she she's sick for a couple of days and she's getting like paralyzed. I mean, when you when you read about it, it sounds like she's having a stroke, but we just, it's it's hard to know at this distance what was actually happening to her. And there's there's no there's no good way to diagnose it from this distance. But she's she's not hurt. She's she's she has to be kind of sat up in bed. She wants to be sat up so she can be a little more attentive. Uh, her 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 gaze she, her gaze looks back and up. She's she's kind of you know getting ready to die, and she's sure she's going to. And at this moment, with her eyes looking up, the priest she remembers this. The priest puts the crucifix in front of her, and she remembers what the priest says. The priest says, I have brought the image of your savior, look at it and take comfort from it, quote, end quote. And then at the very point, which she feels like she's at the very point of death, she recovers. And she remembers, at least as I read the text, she remembers that her, her, her desire for the second wound, which was the recollection and feeling for Christ's passion. And so, at this moment then, she has the first of what will be 16 showings or 16 visions. And the vision is this, the vision is she apparently is still staring at the crucifix, 
And she starts seeing red blood running down from under the, the crown of thorns on the crucifix. And uh, she says in, in her book, she says that at that, at that moment, at that very moment, quote, suddenly the Trinity filled my heart full of the greatest joy. And then let me just read you a little, a little further of that. It's, it's quite moving, actually. It says the, the, the Trinity filled her with, with uh, the this, this sense of joy and the sense of bliss. And the sense, I mean, she, she's actually getting the things she wanted. <laughs> um, and, and so um, what, what then, this, this first vision then is kind of a showing of the crucifix, of the crucifixion, of the passion. And in a sense, this is my interpretation as I'm reading it, she is now entering into the wounded love of God that is represented on the crucifix. Now, let me stop there. I want to say something about this because... We're, you and I, Carla, we live in a time when a lot of people hate crucifixion theology or cross theology. And one of the reasons people hate it is because the evangelical default setting has turned it into a kind of simplistic, uh, you're a sinner, God wanted to kill you, Jesus took it for you instead. Isn't that, isn't that amazingly loving? It sounds like a, a horribly abusive relationship. And it's like, this has nothing to do with really good, really good soteriology or, or theology of the cross. And so what you're going to encounter in Julian is that the passion of Christ, the cross of Christ, is the entry point into, I'll say, into God's wounded heart on behalf of humanity. It's, it's the entry point into a love that never ceases being wounded for us. So I think it's just a whole different way to, to configure this. So um, that's what's happening in this first vision. Now, she has, she has 15 others. And... I believe Jansen, Jansen notes that of the 16 showings, 15 of them are built around her still gazing at the crucifix. This must have all happened fairly quickly, but it takes her, she writes it down and then it takes her 20 years to figure out, what was that that happened to me? <laughs> um, but uh, it, within, that, within that first vision, uh, there's a, a scene that people, people uh, sometimes uh, reflect on about a hazelnut. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, so within the first vision, she says this. At the same time, as I saw this sight of the head bleeding, our good Lord showed a spiritual sight of his familiar love. I saw that he is to us everything which is good and comforting for our help. He is our clothing who wraps and enfolds us for love, embraces us and shelters us, surrounds us for his love, which is so tender that he may never desert us. And so in this sight, I saw that he is everything which is good, as I understand it. In medieval theological terms, she's describing being itself, which is only good. It's goodness itself. And you know, that's, that's her, what she's seeing of God at that moment. And then she says this, and in this, he showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed to me. And it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? I was amazed that it could last, for I thought that because uh, of its littleness, it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. 
and I was answered in my understanding. It lasts and always will because God loves it. And thus everything has being through the love of God. So in other words, in this, the first of her visions, she has an, an image of the universe, the size of a hazelnut. Uh, and, you know, the hazelnut here is an image. It's like a hazelnut. It's small and round. And she's like, oh, my gosh, how tiny is this? It's, and think about her world. Think about her world just literally coming apart around her. And, and yet what, what she comes to understand in this experience is that this will last because God loves it. Divine, divine love is at the heart of being. Oh my gosh, what a breathtaking thing to say in the 14th century when there's so much destruction and loss and devastation and so much uh, willful and malicious destruction of other people. Um, and yet she sees that the creation is loved fully, completely by God. Its very being is of the love of God. I think that's kind of a remarkable, remarkable statement. Uh, and then she and she goes on in the same in the same scene. She says, um, you know, and she she's led to believe. Now, be careful. Uh, you know, don't. I'll put it in my words. Don't don't get all attached to the hazelnut. Don't get all attached to it, um, because the point is to get attached to me, to God. <laughs> right. In other words, the world, the physical universe, which is loved of God, and which in, and in which the love of God is its being, is not the point. The point is for that to point to, to God. And so what's, what this is, is the medieval, this is a, really central to lots of kinds of Catholic spirituality. This is, a, this is an expression of what's called in Latin, contemptus mundi. Literally translated contempt of the world, but that sounds bad and it's not what it means. Um, it's more like, it's not hatred of the world, it's proper detachment from that which is good so that you can attach yourself to that which is the ultimate good, right? St. Augustine centuries earlier would have said that it's learning, you, you learn to love things in God, right? In their, in their chief end. So that's the hazelnut story. And I, I, just, I just absolutely love that scene. And, and when you place it in that 14th century, that miserable 14th century context, the idea of God revealing to her that the world, even in its nastiness is beloved of God and God's love is what gives it being. That's, that's a powerful, powerful thing to say. And it has lots and lots of relevance to us today. It's just beautiful. It's just beautiful that, um, <laughs> it's just beautiful. Uh, I mean, and I, I love thinking about, you know, like how she's like kind of minimizing it a little bit, making it like a hazelnut because her life is kind of minimalized. She has, she lives in a small space <laughs> and that's what she's used to. Yeah. Uh, I just, I'm, I've, I've done a few of these podcasts about mystics before, and I'm always, always astounded by what they say in the midst of them being alone or what, however their, their lives have turned out to be. And I'm, it's no exception. Julian of Norwich is no exception here. Yeah. And, you know, and when you, when you start reading through the thing, and by the way, this is, this is a slow read. Um, you're not going to read the long text in an afternoon. It's 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 real. It's theologically quite dense, and she circles back and circles around. But it's all built around her uh, her twenty years of reflection and interpretation of these of these visions, which happened on that May day in thirteen seventy three. So 
you got to give yourself time and it's really good to have a couple of commentators to help you help <laughs> to help you find your find your bearings in the, the 14th century so some other things i you know we're i'm not going to go through the whole text it would be impossible in a single podcast but i'm just going to point out a couple of other things that I think might be interesting to, to listeners and that certainly are, are relevant uh, to us. Um, one of the things that she she has she's concerned with, of course, is suffering, the nature of suffering, because there's so much suffering around her. And in her theological world, suffering was always connected to sin. Well, you know, uh, Adam's Adam's sin has infected the whole and and we're now paying the price for it. Um, she's very careful to say she agrees with all the teachings of Holy Church, and yet at the same time, she uh, she very creatively and thoughtfully will push back and offer alternatives. This is remarkable in the 14th century. Um, if Henry Dispenser actually had been reading this, I think we would never have heard of her. <laughs> um, but so uh, one of the things she does is she kind of reconfigures the the story of the fall. And this is in, in, in chapter 51 of the long text. It's a, it's a long section. And to make, to make a long section short, what she says is something like this. God created humanity, and humanity has a desire to serve God, right? Uh, it's, it's innate to us. And... Um, if I could put it in contemporary terms, human beings have a natural desire for the best that they know. I could put it that way. And she says, well, what happens is that human beings set off trying to, to the best of their ability, they, 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 they try to run off serving God, serving the best they know. And what happens is they take their eyes off of God and they stumble and fall. And they fall into a ditch and are wounded. And so what she does is she, in, instead of thinking of the human condition in terms of inherited guilt, she reconfigures the human condition to, to more in terms of shared woundedness. That is, we are wounded. And we are, we are wounded because our, our, our desires get all messed up. And we, while we're desiring the best we know, uh, we stumble and fall and mess things up. And what she says in this remarkable section of the book is that if we had only looked up, we would have saw the the loving gaze of the Lord had never left us, right? That even in our bruised, fallen, broken state, we've stumbled into a ditch, uh, Middle English into a dell. We've, we've stumbled into a dell, and and we think we think we've been abandoned there in our own in our own muck and goo and <laughs> misery and our own guilt. And she says. Our loving, our loving Lord never took his glance off us. And so um, she prayed for compassion. And this is the kind of, this is the kind of theology then that uh, is probably why people came to her, I suspect. Um, she was going to try and introduce them to the loving God of the Christian tradition in an era that, that, typically didn't think, first of all, of God in terms of love, but thought of God in terms of justice, and justice in terms of uh, guilt, punishment, and retribution. So she she totally reconfigures that. Um, she does say, you know, the suffering in the world is connected to sin, but God's got it, right? 
God, through the passion, God has it. Uh, so that's one of the ways she deals with that. Um, and then just a, a couple more things, Carla, and we'll kind of round this out. Um, I think one of the most intriguing things about Julian is, <laughs> I hope this language is, is okay. When it comes to the Trinity, she uses what I will uh, happily call gender bending language. So I'll read you, this is, this is from uh, the 58th chapter of the long text. And she says, I'm gonna read you a couple different selections from it so you can get where she's, where she's going. Um, she says, and so in our making, God Almighty is our loving Father, and God All Wisdom is our loving Mother, with the love and the goodness of the Holy Spirit, which is all one God, one Lord. And in the joining and the union, he is our very true spouse, and we his beloved wife and his fair maiden, with which wife he was never displeased. For he says, I love you, and you love me, and our love will never divide in two. I contemplated the work of all the blessed Trinity in which contemplation I saw and understood these three properties, the property of the fatherhood and the property of the motherhood and the property of the Lordship in one God. In our almighty father, we have our protection and our bliss as regards our natural substance, which is ours by our creation from, from without beginning. And in the second person, the second person of the Trinity, in knowledge and wisdom, we have our perfection as regards our sensuality, our restoration, our salvation. For he is our mother. Second person is our mother, brother and savior. And in our good Lord, the Holy Spirit, we have our reward and our gift for our living and our labor, endlessly surpassing all that we desire in his marvelous courtesy. So she's overlaying or interpreting into the doctrine of the Trinity, a whole bunch of new different gender categories, right? Father, son, spirit, that's the traditional language of the church. But she's going from her experiences in, the, in these visions and the, and the deep encounter with, with the, the wounded love of God. And she, she's going to say, there's fatherhood in God, there's motherhood in God and so on. Um, she says further here in the same section, I saw and understood that the high might of the Trinity is our Father, and the deep wisdom of the Trinity is our Mother, and the great love of the Trinity is our Lord, and all these we have in nature and in our substantial creation. And furthermore, I saw that the second person, who is our Mother, substantially the same beloved person, has now become our Mother essentially because we are, we are uh, doubled by God's creating, that is to say, substantial and sensual. I'm gonna tell you what that's about in a minute here. Our substance is the higher part, which we have in our Father, God Almighty. And the second person of the Trinity is our mother in nature, in our substantial creation, in whom we are founded and rooted. And he is our mother of mercy in taking our sensuality. And so our mother is working on us in various ways in whom our parts are kept undivided. For in our mother Christ, we profit and increase. And in mercy, he reforms and restores us. And by the power of his passion, his death and his resurrection, unites us to our substance. Um, what's going on here? <laughs> so first of all, a word about this gender language. Um, we have to let Julian be in the 14th century. And so I want to be very careful about some kind of eternalized gender essentialism, you know. Uh, I, I, whatever she was saying, we have to be careful not to say, 
well, motherhood is an eternal principle in God, and it's it's about nurture and blah blah blah. And fatherhood is a principle of power that's eternally in God. You know, this this is us overlaying our stupid gender stuff on on the divine, and we have to be really careful about that, not to do that. What what Julian is doing is within the gender constructs of her day she is making room in the godhead for a variety of experiences the the the, the father the son and the spirit christ our mother uh, who is connected to us sensually meaning that our sensual physical bodily nature he took on in the incarnation and so mom is mom is connected to child right is what she's saying there basically and so this this is remarkable remarkable language in the middle ages to think of god to think of the triune god the one god with images from her from her cultural context that apply motherhood uh and fatherhood and thus and the, the unifying loving power of the holy spirit all together um now stop we're not talking about what some people call the divine feminine here uh not a helpful concept in my view because um, it just it just eternalizes once again, you know all the all the gender stuff, and this, and we have to be really careful then about traipsing down the polytheistic route, which has happened in some restoration traditions. Um, no, she's she's trying out of experience to say there's so much more to God than our traditional language has let us see, and this this so much more is orthodox it's grounded in scripture it's grounded in tradition it's grounded in our experience uh by the way there's a, an older tradition in in ancient christianity of referring to christ as our nurse and so that that image of of christ that way of that way of talking about christ's uh, meaning and value to us by the use of uh context dependent gender images that has a history within christianity I don't know whether she was a, she knew anything about that, but she certainly picks up on it there, and uh, I think it's it's quite it's quite amazing um, that she goes there. Uh, how different to think of Christ as our mother, right? Uh, to, you know, who's connected to us substantially because uh, of taking our flesh. Uh, but she also will say that the God has the property of motherhood too, um, right? And she again, she's not talking about a divine masculine and a divine feminine. She's talking about she's using she's using gender role language from the 14th century and saying the the Trinity uh, connects us to all this or is connected to all this uh, in a way that allows us to use that language of God to appropriate it to persons of the Trinity. So I don't know. What do you think, Carl? That's that's pretty radical stuff for the 14th century. It is really radical stuff, you know. I didn't think that Julian and I had a lot in common, but it seems like we might have a little bit in common. It seems like she was a bit of a stirrer. She liked to stir the pot a little bit. So did she like get into any trouble for, you know, kind of pushing those uh, kind of gender bending norms? Um, as far as I know, not. Um, we don't know how widely this text was read. It was copied. That's why we were able to, to you know, there's, there's manuscript copies made of it. But um, apparently, apparently, church officials had too much else on their plate <laughs> to read this. And also, you know, if we if we looked at if we looked at the whole medieval mystical tradition, we'd find um, other women mystics who use highly sensual language for the divine the divine human encounter and union. I mean, we use sexual language. I think Charmaine and I talked about that in 
in our, our our introductory podcast to the mystics. But there, and, but you know, you did hear her say, uh, "Our Christ, our spouse," right? Uh, so there is she's that language is quite traditional, and and even somebody as traditional as Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, in the uh, uh, right around 1100, 11th century, 1000s into 1100s, he he wrote a commentary on the Song of Songs that uses all that kind of language. Um, so it wasn't the language of God or Christ as the sole spouse uh, with whom we seek intimacy. Uh, that's not uncommon in in the church's language, but this kind of uh, this kind of motherhood language is, is sort of new as far as I can tell in, in, in the church's life. But you see, she's very careful to say, I, I honor Holy Church, I follow Holy Church's teachings. Um, and then this happened to me, and this is what I'm trying, I'm trying to make sense of it. You know, I, an unlittered woman, I'm trying to make sense of it. And, and she's rigorously Trinitarian. So she's not gonna run into problems there. And she will say things like, as I see it, or as it occurred to me, or as I, you know, she'll, she'll own it as opinion. But what we have here is a vision of the divine human relationship that is uh, characterized by love, connection, intimacy, not power over and subservience as much as a kind of bonding between God and us in our souls. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful language that is really uh, evocative. And, and like I said, she's, she's really come into her own in the last 60 years. That's a long time to wait, but. <laughs> so so I, have, I have one more text, Carla, and then we can, we can round things up. This is, I think, one of her most famous things. Uh, this is in the, the 13th showing in, in chapter 27 of the long text. Um, so if I can find it here, she, she says, And with the beholding of this, with all the pains that ever were or ever will be, I understood Christ's passion for the greatest and surpassing pain. And yet this was shown to me in an instant, and it quickly turned into consolation. For our good Lord would not have the soul frightened by this ugly sight, I, the ugly sight of how much pain he bore and, and, you know, in his own person. But I did not see sin, for I be, believe that it has no kind of substance, no share in being, nor can it be recognized except by the pain caused by it. Now stop, that's an Augustinian idea. Sin, as as an expression of evil, does not have existence. Uh, it, it, is, it, it, doesn't have a, uh, it does not have a substance of its own, right? All the way we know it is by the feelings it leaves behind. So um, that's definitely Augustinian. Um, and it seems to me that this pain is something for a time, for it purges and makes us know ourselves and ask for mercy. So when we do stuff wrong or when things get messed up and we hurt, um, it helps us know ourselves better. And there's a, kind of an educative function to it and it helps us ask for mercy. For the passion of our Lord is comfort to us against all of this. And that is his blessed will. And because of the tender love which our good Lord has for all who will be saved, he comforts steadily and sweetly, meaning this. It is true that sin is the cause of all this pain, but all will be well, and every kind of thing 
will be well. Wow. All right. So what's going on there? Um, existence, is, existence as we know it is full of pain and suffering and struggle. And in her mind, it, it's not, that's not unconnected to sin, not unconnected to our, our self-love, our self-loathing, whatever, right? But it's, she's basically saying it's not unknown to God. It's, it's been taken into God through the passion and therefore we're covered and all will be well. In the end, all will be well. Um, I think she means that eschatologically, that in the end of ends, all will be up, all will be, be well. By the way, there are parts of the showings that you can read as if she is, she has her own suspicions that hell is not a good doctrine. <laughs> she kind of, that's, and this is really kind of on the edge in the 14th century, but she has a sense that the passion of the passion of Christ, which is the passion of God the Son, is big enough to cover it all. And so uh, there's so much richness and and so much to be learned from sitting at the window of this anchoress from the 14th century. Um, she's well worth, I think, exploring. And one of the things I love about about her work is how Christocentric it is. Um, it's focused on what is the heart of Christianity. Um, incarnate, crucified, risen, coming again. That the, the, the story, the storyline that's at the heart of the story. Her, her spirituality is based and built around that. And in the passion of Christ, she finds a revelation of a love that is broad and big and rich enough to cover it all. Oh, Tony, you made, this has been a roller coaster of emotions for me. First of all, I was like, no way. She sounds like a crazy person. I'm, there's no way I'm never going to like this person ever. And now like I'm in, she's, she sounds amazing. Um, I, she sounds like she, um, was really pushing the envelope on a lot of places. And, uh, her, a lot of, from what you've said, it seems like her theology is very similar to my theology, which sounds, it's amazing that I'm matching someone from the 14th century. Which blows right, my, minus the anchor hold. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I like, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get that out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> and, well, I, I suspect though there are lots of people who would come to your window to ask for wisdom and advice. So I think you're very kind because I don't think I can think of anyone. <laughs> Um, and only two meals a day and then only one meal a day. You know, I can't handle that, Tony. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and, and oh, I didn't mention no meat either. None of the meals had meat. And so, Carla, neither your one meal of the day nor your two meals are ever going to have bacon again. <laughs> and I'm guessing no Velveeta either. I mean, what's the point? <laughs> no, Velveeta may have been invented in the 14th century. I just don't know for sure. <laughs> That might be the Velveeta we eat today. Um, but I really appreciate your walking us through, um, learning more about Julian of Norwich. She sounds incredible, just an amazing human being. And I I really enjoyed learning more about her. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. I, I find her endlessly, endlessly intriguing and a really, a really good antidote to lots of the kinds of uh, 
judgmental versions of Christianity that are so prevalent in so many traditions. Um, this is somebody who's come face to face with the truth of the claim in the, in the New Testament that God is love. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. That was so wonderful. All right, Tony, you're the best. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.